There's one week left to Rosh Hashanah when we usher in the new Jewish year. Here's our new Jewish calendar and today it is Tuesday 12.15 p.m. We'll talk about Rosh Hashanah at our Lunch and Learn. Every Tuesday at 12.15 p.m. we get on for another lesson <clears throat> taking 60 minutes to explore another topic. Tonight's top- Today's topic is can one change God's mind? And we'll see what this has got to do with Rosh Hashanah, the new Jewish year, this upcoming Monday evening, September 6th in the evening, brings in the new Jewish year and the holiday of Rosh Hashanah. We'll explore this in uh, just a couple of moments. Hi Jody, hi Roy, I'll make a blessing as we begin. Baruch Rosh Hashanah, that's the holiday that brings some good memories, apples and honey, pomegranates, fish, going to the water for the Tashlech prayer, and so many other, the shofar, hearing the blowing, the blasts of the shofar, the synagogue, prayers, and today we'll focus in on a story, a moving story. That happened about 3,000 years ago and see how this story can give us some inspiration for the holiday of Rosh Hashanah, what prayer is about and you may have heard her, heard of her, her name was Hannah, we're going to call her Chana, a beautiful Jewish name and we will explore the story and see what kind of messages it contains, it has for us. 3,000 years later, as we embark on a new year, the year 5,782. As usual, we have a source sheet. Hi, Vicky. We prepared for today's lesson. It's attached to this post or check your email. And <clears throat> here we go. Here we go. We're going to jump right in. This is about a 60-minute lesson, and our class is divided into four sections. We will have uh, first section, a bit of an introduction to the holiday of Rosh Hashanah. Then we'll dive into the story of Hannah, the story of Hannah and her son Samuel or Shemuel. We'll talk about some of the lessons of these stories in the final two sections. Hi, Stan. You can take a moment to share this post so that others can join in as well uh, to hear some traditional sources from Torah, from Talmud, from Midrash, from Chassidus, shedding light on this story and what it has to do with us. Here we go. We're going to jump into source number one, a quote from Maimonides, Moses, the son of Maimon. He writes like this, source number one, Moshe, Moses, our teacher ordained that the Jews should read the Torah publicly on Shabbos. Every Shabbos, we read the Torah, we take out the Torah scroll, and we read the Torah. We divide the Torah, which is the five books of Moses, into approximately 54 sections. And every Shabbos, every Saturday morning that we call Shabbos, we take out the Torah and we read one section. That's called the Parsha. The cycle of Torah readings is interrupted for the festivals when we read a passage that concerns the festival. 
So every Shabbos, we're just following the order. We start from Bereshus, from the first portion, Genesis, and we keep going. We read the story of Noah, then we read about Abraham, and then Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and the Jews in the desert, and in Egypt, and then in the desert. And we just go along every Shabbos, another portion. However, says Maimonides, that when it comes to the festivals, when it comes to Passover, for example, we're not going to read where we're up to in the yearly cycle. That would be in the middle of the third book of Leviticus. Rather, we take a break, and we find in the five books a portion which talks about the holiday. So instead of reading in Leviticus on Passover, we'll go back to Exodus and talk about the Exodus of Egypt, because that's the theme of the holiday of Passover, which is the anniversary of the liberation of the Jews from Egypt. So every Shabbos follows, we just follow the next parsha, the next parsha, until we finish it over the course of the year. But when it comes to the holidays, we'll read, we'll find somewhere out of order where it talks about where it's befitting the theme of that particular holiday. That's point number one. Source number two. Once the non-Jewish, after the reading of the Torah, we have something called the Haftorah. If you had a bar mitzvah, you probably had to study the Haftorah, which is a portion which is read, not from a Torah scroll, after the reading of the Torah scroll. What is that about? Source number two, once the non-Jewish rulers of Israel instituted decrees intended to stamp out the Jews' religion and forbade them to read from the Torah. one point in our history, some attributed this to the time of the Greeks about 23, 2400 years ago I would say maybe a little less 22 to 2300 years ago and they connected to the story of Hanukkah one of the things that they outlawed in order to stamp out the Jews' religion they realized that the public Torah reading on Shabbos when the masses were off from work and were assembled in the synagogue hearing the words of Torah, they outlawed this ceremony. They forbade them to read the Torah. Now, at that point, the custom was to read the five books of Moses, one portion every week. So that's what they forbade. So the Jews, to compensate, the Jews would read a selection from the works of the prophets that shares the theme of the Torah reading. So if they were not allowed, it was outlawed to read the Torah, the actual portion from the five books of Moses, the weekly parsha. they went to the books of the prophets, which was not forbidden. There are eight books, books of prophets, Joshua, the Judges, Samuel, and Kings. <clears throat> and then... Uh, the prophets Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and, and, and Treasar. And they found, in, in the, within the books of the prophets, they found a chapter or half of a chapter which shared a theme which they would have read in the weekly parsha of the five books of Moses. So if, there was a, if it was the story of, uh, of the Exodus, they would find some sort of story of similar to Exodus in the books of the prophets and read that on the, on the Shabbos that they would have read the story of the Exodus. That's the introduction. And that's how we have today. Even after this decree was abolished, this custom stuck, and there are other reasons given for this custom, that after the weekly Torah reading on Shabbos, we open up a book of prophets, a printed book, and we read a, pa- a chapter of the prophets, which shares the theme of the parasha. 
Of course, it's a story that happened many years later. But the theme of the Haftorah, which means the concluder, the one that concludes, the, that concludes the, the reading, the Haftorah has a similar theme to the, week, to, to the portion being read. Now, on a holiday, we mentioned that on the holiday we read, not the weekly partial, we read something which is the theme of the holiday. So the Haftorah also is a story or a chapter of, of the prophets which shares the theme of the holiday. Now let's get to our upcoming holiday, the holiday of Rosh Hashanah, which falls out this year. It's early, you know, the Jewish holidays, it's always either late or early. It's never on time. So the holidays this year is early. On Monday evening begins the holiday, and Tuesday is the first day of Rosh Hashanah. We will take out the Torah, and we will read the Torah, and we will read the half Torah. What will we read? Let's take a look at source number three. On the first day of Rosh Hashanah, we read the story of Isaac's birth. Isaac. Isaac was the son of Abraham. Abraham and Sarah were married for many years. They were getting on in age, and they did not have a child together. And finally, Yitzchak is born, Isaac is born. And that's the reading, it's, a, it's, a, it's from the book of Genesis of Horatius, the fourth portion, where it describes that Isaac was born. What's the Haftorah? And the Haftorah follows the same theme, discussing the miraculous birth of Shemuel, the prophet Samuel, to his formerly barren mother, Hannah. So Rosh Hashanah, the Torah reading, which is the theme of the holiday, is the story of the birth of Yitzchak, the first Jewish boy to be born. Avraham wasn't born he, as a youngster or a young man. He recognized God and, and began a relationship, a very unique one with Hashem. But the first Jewish boy to be born was Yitzchak, Isaac. And that's what we read about on Rosh Hashanah. And the Haftorah is many hundreds of years later, the birth of Shemuel, to his formerly barren mother, Hannah, who gave birth to him in a miraculous way. As we will see, that's the story of the Haftar from the books of the prophets, from the book of Samuel. What is the connection to the theme of Rosh Hashanah? What is Isaac's being born and Samuel being born connected to Rosh Hashanah, which is the new year? So we take a look in source number four on Rosh Hashanah, the Talmud tells us, Sarah, Rachel, and Hannah were remembered by God and conceived. Sorry. That the day of Rosh Hashanah is also the anniversary, besides being a new year, it is the anniversary, it is the day that God remembered Sarah. As the reading begins, and God remembered Sarah and she conceived after being married for many, many years, tens of years. Being childless, Finally, on Rosh Hashanah, God remembered her. So although Isaac was born uh, year, months later, but on the Rosh Hashanah is when she conceived, or at least when God remembered her plight. And the same thing, Rachel. Rachel was the wife of, of Isaac's son, Jacob, years later. And she was also barren. She was childless for many years of marriage. And finally, on Rosh Hashanah, she was remembered. God remembered her, and she conceived, and she bore a son, Joseph. As well as Hannah. Hannah was remembered on Rosh Hashanah. And this is not just a detail, but it is connected to the theme of Rosh Hashanah. As we continue in source number four, second part, who gave us, we say in the Siddur, in the prayers, in the Kiddush, 
blessing where you talk about the holiday of Rosh Hashanah, it's actually not referred to as Rosh Hashanah. That's how, that's how we refer to the holiday. Rosh Hashanah, which means the head of the year, the new year. But actually, in, um, in the biblical term for the holiday, it is, as we say, you gave us in love this day of remembrance, a day for sounding the shofar. It is a day of remembrance. It is referred to as Yom Hazikaron, the day of remembrance, because on this day the existence of every creation comes before God. God remembers, remembers every individual human being, every every uh, being in, in general, every existence of creation, and remembers the good deeds of our ancestors. It's a day of remembrance. That's why we blow the shofar. The shofar is the horn of a ram, and ram is connected to the binding of Isaac and in his stead they Abraham brought up a ram and we want to remember that self-sacrifice there's lots of ideas of remembrance on this day it is a day of remembrance and this is a day that these three women in our history Sarah Rachel and Hannah were remembered so the Torah reading is about remembrance it is a story that God remembered these women and blessed them with a child but in addition to that, there's another aspect. They could have remembered them for anything. But specifically, the remembrance was about children. Because children is very much connected to the theme of Rosh Hashanah. Number one, as we see in source number five, Adam and Eve were created on Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is the birthday of man. Rosh Hashanah is the new year because on this day is when Adam and Eve were created. This is the day number six of creation. Five days before Rosh Hashanah is when God started creating the world. And day number six is when God created the first man and the first woman, Adam and Chava. And every year when this day comes, it's, the, it's a new year because it's a new year of, of man living on this, of life of man in this world. And on that day that they were created, on the day of Rosh Hashanah, the first day of the whole of the Jewish month of Tishrei, they received the commandments from God. What was it? We look into Genesis in the parsha, the first parsha, source five. God said to them, "Be fruitful and multiply." I don't. Need, I'm not going to create a, every human being myself. God says, "I need you as partners." I created a male. I created a female. Now be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with children. And they didn't wait around. They were adults. They were created as adults. And Bobayom, in that same day, they procreated, as the Talmud tells us, in the seventh hour of the day, on that Friday, Eve was paired with him. In the eighth hour, they arose to the bed too and descended forth. They gave birth. She gave birth to two children right on that day. The whole process of, of uh, conception and pregnancy, the, the whole process, the nine-month process of, of, uh, of, of, bearing a, of having a child was a very quick process. Remember, this is before the sin of the, golden ca- of the tree of knowledge. Only after Adam and Eve partook from the fruits of the tree of knowledge, that is when she was cursed, that she will have pain and um, having children and the whole nine month and labor and the whole 
way we we understand that we see childbirth, that was non-existent then. This was a quick process back in that time. That will be restored when Mashiach will come. Definitely something to look forward to. <clears throat> so at that point, on the same day, on Rosh Hashanah, it's not just the birth, it's not just the day that Adam and Eve were created, but it's actually the day that the first children were brought into the world. Definitely conceived and even born on that day. The two sons, or, or this different opinions exactly the, the son and the twin sister or the two sons but on that day children were first born so Rosh Hashanah is the anniversary of childbirth albeit in a different manner but childbirth nonetheless and that is the theme of Rosh Hashanah it's about children it's a day of remembrance it is a day associated with children and that's why the stories that we read about are remembrance in regards to children because on Rosh Hashanah as we see in source numbers on Rosh Hashanah we commit we recommit to the mission we were entrusted with on the day man was created 5,782 years ago what is the mission we were entrusted with mankind the, the purpose of man is to choose to be aware of the divine reality hidden behind the thick veil of nature and to promote this awareness the ta- this task begins at home on Rosh Hashanah, we resolve to provide our children with their spiritual needs and rid our homes of all negative influences. So Rosh Hashanah is the day associated with children. It is the day that our mission in this world began. God created this world with a purpose, with a mission. He hid himself behind the veil of nature where we need to search for him. We need to find him behind the reality that we can see with our eyes and to promote this awareness especially at home and beginning with our own family <clears throat> ourselves and our family as one wise man once said that he was already in, in his 90s an older individual and he said you know when I was a young man I had plans to change the whole world and I was very uh, ambitious, I was going to change the, change the world. But after a few years, I realized I would be unsuccessful. I decided I'm just going to change my country. After that failed, a few years later, I decided I'm just going to change my city. I'm going to try to change the people uh, and all the issues in my city. But a few years later, I realized I would be unsuccessful and I decided just to change and focus in on my own neighborhood. But after a couple of years, I realized that too would be impossible. So I decided just to change my family and... Uh, and make them improve and make the right changes. But after many years, I realized that I just got to change myself. And perhaps, he says, now it's a little bit too late, but if I would have just decided to change myself when I was younger, perhaps my family would have changed as a result. And perhaps as a result of my family's change, the neighborhood would change, and the city and the, and the country and the entire world. It begins with ourselves, and our own immediate family comes next. And when it comes to Rosh Hashanah, it is a day associated with children. It is a time, as parents, to promote this awareness in our homes. The awareness of the mission that God entrusted us, and especially as Jewish people, the mission of bringing godliness, of recognizing the, the reality that is hidden from our eyes. But we understand it with our minds and our souls. This is the theme of Rosh Hashanah, and that's why the Torah reading and the Haftorah is connected to the story of children. And now let's jump in to the second section, the actual story of the Haftorah. The story of the Haftorah, perhaps a quite famous story, even other religions seem to study the story, the story of Hannah. 
we're going to refer to her in the Jewish way, the Hebrew way, which is Chana. I know quite a few Chanas. And Chana is a beautiful name. Some nicknames for Chana would be Chani, Chanale, Chanshi. Um, but this is the name of a woman. The first woman we know who had this name was a woman who lived about 3,000 years ago in the Holy Land of Israel, a couple hundred years after the Jews entered the land of Israel, after leaving Egypt, 40 years in the desert, they settled the land of Egypt, and the temple was not yet built in the city of Jerusalem. King David had yet to come around, and King Solomon for sure. This is before those days. The tabernacle, the temple, was situated, was located in a city called Shiloh. Today, the city can be visited. I visited the city about 12 years ago. Uh, Shiloh, that was where the tabernacle was located. And we turn to the story in the beginning of the book of Shemuel. So the books of the prophets, after the five books of Moses, comes the book of Yoshua, Joshua, then comes the book of Shoftim, which is the book of Judges, and the third book is the book of Shemuel, or the book of Samuel. In the outskirts, on the outskirts of the city of Jerusalem, there is a ancient building over a cave and burial plot of a man named Shemuel, or in, some call it Nebi Samuel. Shemuel Hanavi, Samuel the prophet, Shemuel the prophet, one of the greatest prophets of, the, of our history. And his mother was Hannah. And we take a look in the opening story of the book of Shemuel, source number 7. The fact that he lived and was around was thanks to his exceptional mother, which her name was Chana. The story opens up in Source 7. Elkanah, there was a man named Elkanah. He was a Levite. And Elkanah, a very um, prestigious and pious man, Elkanah had two wives, Chana and Penina, which was at that time common practice and permitted according to biblical law. There is an enactment, enactment that uh, we do not have more than one wife. This is a, a tradition of about a thousand years, but this is way before that. Elkanah had two wives, Chana and Penina. His first wife was Chana. His second wife was Penina. Penina had children. She had many children. But Chana was childless for the Lord had closed her womb. The Lord had closed her womb. Chana was childless. In fact, the, the story may be studied by others, or we're going to study the story according to the oral tradition, the Jewish tradition, how uh, the details of this, some details of the story that are not clear in Scripture, but uh, were orally passed down and eventually transcribed in the Talmud and the Midrash. Continuing in Source 7, Chana arranged for her husband to marry a second wife, Penina. Elkanah and Chana were married, and after years of marriage, with no children, Hannah, <clears throat> trying to see what could she do to bring children into the world, she initiated this relationship that this woman, Penina, should marry her husband, Elkanah, as well. And she found a precedent by a different, uh, previous, other two women, we mentioned before that were remembered on Rosh Hashanah, Sarah and Rachel. Sarah was also married to Avram, and with, when being childless after many years, she, she suggested to Avram to marry her maid, Hagar. And indeed, he married her, 
at least as a concubine, and she gave birth to a son, Yishmael. As well as Rachel, Rachel, who was married to Jacob, who was childless, and she brought in her maidservant Bilhah. And eventually she was remembered as a result, as was Sarah remembered. And later she gave birth to Isaac. So Hannah did the same. Hannah was married to Elkanah, who was a prophet. And Hannah brought in a woman named Penina, continuing here. This was a difficult step for Hannah, to bring in a foreign woman, another woman, into her intimate life, share her husband with another woman. But she hoped that in the reward of allowing her husband and a fellow Jewish woman to marry and have children, we don't know too many details about this Penina, but Hannah was giving her a chance, an opportunity to be married to Elkanah to have children and giving her husband, Elkanah, children, she too would be blessed with a child. So she literally sacrificed uh, her husband, meaning she gave up her uh, unique and personal relationship somewhat with Elkanah and shared that with another woman, doing good to this other woman as well, giving her an opportunity to have children in the hope that she would have a child. That's how much she desired a child and she was ready to sacrifice for a child. But years went by, Penina had many children from Elkanah and Hannah remained childless. And this was very difficult for Hannah. She yearned, yearned for children. And especially at holiday meals, and we have plenty of holidays and plenty of meals, it was extremely difficult sitting around the table uh, with your co-wife, I guess, and many children that weren't yours. That was difficult for her. And she was very bitter. Especially, Source 8 tells us, her rival would frequently anger her. Penina would torment Hannah to make her complain. And Hannah would, she, she would say things like, the Midrash tells us, she would say things, uh, Hannah, did you uh, buy uh, clothes for your children for the holiday? What did you get them? Are, they, are you picking them up from school? Or at the meal, she would t tell her husband, Elkanah, Penina would tell Elkanah, uh, my, this child didn't get it, and that child needs to get it. She would talk lots about her children, pointing out uh, how she's different than Chana. And Chana doesn't have these opportunities. She would uh, seem to, what seemed to be very insensitive remarks and comments to Chana. And on the a superficial reading, it sounds like Penina was, was just a cruel woman. Here, Chana brought her into the marriage and gave her an opportunity. And here, it's backlashing. She's, uh, Penina's making it even more difficult with her insensitive comments. However, the, the Talmud tells us, continuing here, excuse me, the, the Midrash, Khan, I'm sorry, where are we here? Uh, in Source 8, yes, the Talmud, the middle of Source 8, Penina, the proud mother of ten. Sorry, uh, in source number 8, Penina acted with intent that was for the sake of heaven. The Talmud establishes, tells us, that Penina's intentions were for the sake of heaven. What could be good intentions? Why would she poke fun at Chana? Penina, the proud mother of ten, could not stand to see Chana accept a life of barrenness. On the contrary, the Talmud says, she was filled with gratitude towards Chana and she wished that Chana would too be blessed with children. But she sensed 
that Chana didn't pray hard enough. And therefore, in order to invoke her prayer, Penina cloaked herself in a role that made her hate herself to do what had to be done. She tormented her cruelly so that Chana cries out to God from the depths of her soul. She wanted to bring Chana to such a low point that she should be so um, inspired and so bitter that she would cry to God and beg God with, from the depths of her soul for a child. And, and Penina believed that that would be successful, as we will soon see it was. So although um, Penina may have been punished in some way, because nonetheless it was done in an insensitive way and brought pain and anguish to Chana, but her intentions were pure. Her intentions, the Talmud tells us, was L'Shem Shemayim, was for the sake of heaven. She wanted to really help Chana. And her way of helping her was by making her even more bitter that she should pray even harder. And she should pray from the depths of her soul that she can't stand this, this, uh, this suffering. And indeed, one holiday when they went up, to the, to the tabernacle in the city of Shiloh and there were portions given to all the children and Hannah was after barely ate because she was just so sad and so bitter she went up herself to the tabernacle and in front of the, the Ark of the Covenant the holy place that is where she prayed the prayer of Hannah as she's known she beseeched God what did she say? source number 9 Hannah was bitter in spirit and she prayed to God and wept O Lord of hosts if you will look upon the suffering of your maidservant, I will remember and not forget me. And if you will grant your maidservant a male child, I will dedicate him to the Lord for all the days of his life. Here, Hannah implored God to answer her prayer once and for all. She prayed like she never prayed before. She prayed from the depths of her soul. She cannot take this no longer. She must have a child. And actually, some of the commentaries say that this prayer took place on Rosh Hashanah. And this is the story that we read, the Haftorah. Chana would not give in. Chana says to God, God, if you give me a male child, and, God, and Chana knew exactly what she wanted, and she wanted a, a, a good child, a holy child, a, a child which will be a prophet. Chana says, I will dedicate him to the Lord. He will be dedicated to serving God. Now, if you take a look at the wording, God, Hannah says, O Lord of hosts, in Hebrew, which is one of the seven names of God, but one that was not used up until Hannah. Hannah was the first to refer to God with this name. As the Talmud tells us, or stand from the day that God created the world, His world, there was no person who called Him Lord of hosts. Literally, like a, like an army, the Lord of armies and armies, the heavenly armies, the the, the earthly armies, until Chana. Chana was the first. Why? Because that was part of her prayer. She said, Master of the universe, with all the hosts and hosts of creations that you created in your world, is it difficult in your eyes to grant me one son? I mean, you're the God who has plenty of creations. You're the 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 multi-powerful, uh, you know, God. Look, you're, you're the God of hosts. You have armies, the angels, the stars, and the suns, and the heavens, and, and in this world, can't you afford just to give me one child? 
she didn't she didn't say oh well god has his ways and there must be a reason she said god you are the lord of hosts can't you grant me a child source number 11 the talmud brings a parable is it like a, it is like a king who made a feast for his servants a ma- a feast a a feast with plenty and plenty of delicacies and food, a poor person came and said to them, says to the servant, give me one slice of bread, I'm starving, and I just have one little piece. But they paid him no attention. He pushed and he entered the, before the king and said, from this entire feast, you made this whole, you prepared this whole feast. Is it, is, is it so difficult in your eyes to give me a single slice of bread? I'm just asking for one child. My, she has so many children. I'm just asking for one child. Look, look who you, this is God we're talking about. So instead of saying, well, this is what God wants. He knows what he's doing. Hannah really prayed. Maybe God is waiting for your prayer. He knows what he's doing. Maybe he's waiting for us to ask. It's actually one of the things the Torah says. We should pray. He wants to help, hear us ask. And that's what Hannah did. She didn't take no for an answer. She didn't just wait. She prayed. And we'll see soon this continuation of the story. She was successful. Her prayer bore fruit. But let's take a moment to focus in on her prayer itself. They say there was a couple who were having some difficulties at home and they were giving each other the silent treatment. <clears throat> the husband is going to sleep and he realizes that he has a business flight. The next morning he has to get up at 5 a.m. But he doesn't want to talk to his wife. <laughs> he needs her to wake, her, wake him up. So she, he, he writes a note and he puts it uh, on her pillow. You know He knows she's for sure going to see it. Please wake me up at 5 a.m. And he goes to sleep. He has a good night's sleep. He wakes up. He sees it's 9 a.m. He missed his flight. He is so mad. He doesn't understand. He left a note for his wife to wake him up. But then he turns over and he sees a note over there from his wife. And it says, Sam, it's 5 a.m. Time to wake up. So she left him a note. It's not, it's not uh, the Jewish way to give God the silent treatment. We talk to God and we say, God, this is not what I want. I want a child or whatever other need and desire we're asking from God. We pray to God and ask God. We say, God, you're the Lord of hosts. You can do it. Do it for me. And when we pray with heart and soul, then the bigger chance there is that it will be accepted. You know, sometimes God says no. But we must pray. We must try. We must beseech God to answer our prayers. Let's move on to the third section. We'll delve into what is unique about Hannah's prayer. Because Hannah's prayer, the prayer of Hannah, is the source, as we see in source number 12, the source of many laws of prayer. Source 12, many significant laws of prayer are derived from the verses of Hannah's prayer. Hannah's prayer, there's a certain, uh, there's something striking about Hannah's prayer that is unique. Because even though we find prayer before, we find prayer by Abraham, by Avram, and Isaac, and Jacob, and Moshe, we find prayer before. 
But specifically, the prayer of Chana is the source of many of the laws of prayer. There must be an element to Chana's prayer that is critical to the definition of prayer. If anybody has any questions or comments, hi Mark and Nancy, feel free to post in the comments <clears throat> along the way, or jokes. <clears throat> there must be something very unique about Chana's prayer. By the way, Chana was a prophetess, one of the seven prophetesses, seven women, Jewish women that had uh, prophecy. <clears throat> well, look at some examples. What are the laws a little bit later? But there must, let's talk about Chana's prayer. And, and actually, let's take a, let's go back to a different story. The story of one of the Jewish kings. Uh, I think last, last lesson we spoke about Judah and why we're called Jews. And uh, there were the, the Judean kings, the kings of the tribe of Judah, who ruled the Jewish people. And one of the great pious kings was a man named Chizkiah. And Chizkiah was a great-great-grandson of King David. He lived uh, many years after Khan, a couple hundred years later. Oh, actually, maybe, I don't know, I'm guessing probably 300 years later or so. And Chizkiah receives a visitor. This is already in Jerusalem. And he receives a visitor. Who is his visitor? The prophet. Who is the prophet? A man named Yeshaya, Isaiah in English. Yeshaya comes to visit the king, Chizkiah. He's the prophet of God, Yeshaya. He has a message from God for the king. What's the message? Source number 14, uh, 13. Chizkiah became critically ill. When Isaiah the prophet came and said to him, So has the Lord said, Give orders to your household. Arrange your, your bank accounts. For you are going to die and you shall not live. Know that this is a, this is a terminally ill um, illness. And prepare, prepare for your passing. In other words, Isaiah was telling him, the decree has already been decreed against you and this judgment cannot be changed. I have a message from God. I'm telling you, God is uh, the creator and the director, the orchestrator, the conductor of this world. And God tells me, his prophet, to give a prophecy to you, to notify you, giving you a chance to get things in order because it is time for you to die soon. What does Chizkiah tell him? After... He finishes giving him the message, source 14. Chizkiah said to him, Seize your prophecy and leave. Don't start telling me anything else. Just tell me what God said and leave. I have received a tradition from the house of my father's father from King David. Even if a sharp sword rests upon a person's neck, he should not prevent himself from praying for mercy. There's no giving up until the last moment. And this is part of Jewish practice today. Until a person dies, we don't talk about a funeral. Even whatever the doctors are saying, we don't make any preparations. Yes, there is a custom of buying a burial plot. That's a person can do when they're much younger. You don't have to do it when you're five years old, but 
uh, it is the custom, and we mentioned in other lessons, to buy a a uh, burial plot, but that is a blessing for long life. But arrangements for the actual funeral, anything of, this, of that sort, we don't do, because until the last moment, one should not refrain, one should not prevent himself from praying. There's always hope. There's always something that can happen. Maybe not in a natural order of things. Maybe there's no logical and rational explanation and uh, option and uh, opportunity for something to change, possibility for something to change. But we have a tradition, Chizkiah says, from King David, that even if there's a sword on a person's neck, it's right there, it's the last second, a person should still pray. And Chizkiah tells Isaiah, he says, Caesar prophecy, you told me what God said. I know that's the message of God. But right now I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray to God. I'm going to try to change God's mind. And indeed, Chizkiah prayed. Source 15. Chizkiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Chizkiah wept profusely. And the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, saying, after Chizkiah finished his prayer, Isaiah comes back into the room and he says, or he gets the prophecy, go and say to Chizkiah, so as the Lord said, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears, behold, I will add 15 years to your life. Chizkiah changed God's mind. I didn't make the story up. Open up the book of Isaiah and the story is right there. That God at first said, you will die. And I, God instructed Isaiah to tell Chizkiah that it is time to tell, give his orders to his household because God had decided that it's time to die. And if Chizkiah would have not prayed, that indeed would have happened, probably. But Chizkiah did not take it as the final word. Chizkiah goes and prays. And he wept and he prayed from the depths of his soul. And he was successful. God extended his life for 15 years. During that time he married. He married the daughter of Isaiah. He had two children. And he lived 15 more years of life. As a result of prayer. And weeping profusely. Which is telling us that he cried and prayed from the depth of his soul. Prayer can change things. And now we go back to Hannah. Hannah did not have unexplained infertility. She had explained infertility. She was a barren woman. She was an infertile woman. She was not naturally capable of bearing children. And yet, she prayed to God. She didn't have a plan. She wasn't doing a treatment and she said, God, there is a certain percentage, certain chance this will be successful. Please make it be successful. There was no natural way for this to work. And yet, she demanded from God to have a child. Our um, great-grandfather would say a story of a man that came to his Rebbe and he says that he wants a blessing for a child. So the rabbi says, okay, what's your name and your mother's name? I'll pray for you. So he gives him his name and he says, um, and what's your wife's name? He says, a wife? I don't have a wife. So he says, well, how do you, gonna, how do you want a child? He's like, if I had a wife, I didn't need to come to you. I want a child without a wife. But obviously, uh, she was a woman. But 
she, according to the doctors, she was not capable of having a child. And yet, she prayed. We can't expect to win the lottery without buying a ticket. But, this is, was her prayer. As we see in source number 16, Hannah's request was outlandish. She was a barren woman, created just so by the master of the world. God created her that way, to be barren. She had no chance of conceiving and bearing a child according to the natural order of things. And by the way, God was the one that set in place the rules of nature and how a child is created and born. Yet argue she did. Break your law just this once, she beseeched. She would not accept a fate handed to her by, handed her by God himself. And this type of chutzpah was unprecedented. But it was precisely the inconceivably audacious nature of Hannah's prayer that placed it at the center of prayer. This is where we learn significant laws, we derive laws, the prayer of Hannah, because this is the model of prayer. This is the Jewish form of prayer. Prayer is about demanding from God something which we have no, no idea how it's going to happen. And yet, we have the chutzpah, we have the audacity to respectfully ask God for it. You can figure it out, God. You're the Lord of hosts. Don't tell me how to figure it out. I'll do my part, whatever I can. But it's up to you, God. You can manage it. You can figure it out. Not because I deserve it. Because who am I? But because you're God. And you're our Father. And we're your children. So do it for us. It's against your rules of nature that you put in place. So break your rules of nature this time. Source 17. The essence of prayer is not the giving of thanks. Which is also, we do praise God and offer gratitude and thanks, but that's not the essence of prayer. It's also not a marketplace for negotiating our desires through the currency of good behavior. I'm going to be good. I was good. I'm such an honest person. I am a good person. I deserve it. Because then, do, you, do, do, do we only want something which we deserve? And what if we don't deserve? What if we didn't do as much as we can? What is prayer? It's what happens after a guilty verdict was passed in the heavenly court. And after all appeals were rejected, prayer is the act of begging the president of the world for a pardon. Real prayer thus begins when there is no conceivable end in sight. It's not about that I deserve it. It's not about that I'm worthy. It's not, look how good I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. It's just praying to God. It's just asking God to give us what we desire. I don't know how. I don't, I don't deserve it. I can't figure out how it's going to happen. But God, you can do it. You are the Lord of hosts. Hannah was the one that referred to God as this. She had no way that she didn't have a plan how it's going to happen. But she said to God, you're going to make it happen. And I'm asking that it should, be, that it should happen. That's what prayer is. And from Hannah's prayer, we learn about prayer. That's where we learn the laws of prayer from. Not from Avram, not from Isaac, because Hannah's prayer had this element to it, this chutzpah, that she was asking God to go against the laws of nature. And not just that, 
She wanted a child which will be holy, pious, a real righteous man. <laughs> That's also against God's rules. God doesn't take away freedom of choice. God get, creates everybody equally and everyone has a choice to be uh, to, to do choose good or to choose uh, the opposite of good. And here she was asking for a child that will be good. It's also against God's system. And yet, she demanded it. And you know what? She was successful. As we'll see in the next section. So when it comes to Rosh Hashanah, and we're <clears throat> opening our prayer books, the Mahzar, and we're asking God, you might say, I haven't shown up for a while, I haven't done this, I haven't done that, maybe God is upset with me, erase those thoughts. God is our Father. We are His children. And we have the right to ask for what we need and what we desire. And God will listen. And when we pray from the depths of our soul, like Hannah, the more chance is that God will fulfill our requests. We ought to have some chutzpah. It's not my story. The story is in the book. And the story is in the book not just to tell us history. The story is in the book. There's so many stories that happened. These stories were chosen and written with all of these details and the oral t details were written down and transcribed to teach us. These lessons are eternal and it tells us about how we should lead our, lead our lives and how we should pray. What's the end of the story? We'll conclude with, uh, with a message for the Jewish mom and father. Source number 18. Let, let's look at the, the book of Shemuel. Chana was speaking. These words are ancient words. These words were transcribed 3,000 years ago. And Jews have been studying this. These are beautiful words. Chana was speaking in her heart. Picture Chana, a bitter woman. And she's in the tabernacle in Shiloh. And she is speaking in her heart. Only her lips were moving and her voice was not heard. She was like whispering sort of. Eli thought her to be a drunken woman. Who was Eli? Eli was the high priest. He was the serving high priest in the, in the tabernacle at Shiloh. And Eli sees this woman there and her lips are moving but he can't hear what she's saying. And Eli thinks that, thought her to be a drunken woman. And said to her, Until when will you be drunk? What's this? Coming here to the temple, coming here to the tabernacle, we talking, we, I don't hear what you're saying. It wasn't, it wasn't understood to him. He suspected her to be drunk. Hannah answered, No, my lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit, and neither new nor old wine have I drunk. And I poured out my soul before the Lord. I'm not drunk. I am bitter and I'm pouring my heart out to God. And she said, I'm asking God. Eli answered, go in peace. And the God of Israel will grant your request. And says, Hannah went home. She was in seventh heaven. Eli, the high priest, told her that her prayer was, was granted. She went home and she trusted that she would be remembered and she will conceive and have a child. There was no doubt. 
Sure enough, they came back home to an Alkana new Hana, and the Lord remembered her. She bore a son and she called him Shemuel. Now, interesting, the biblical term for um, relations is new. Elkanah knew Hannah, knowing, being intimate with each other, getting to know each other. It's an interesting idea for itself. So Elkanah was with Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. She conceived, and she bore a son, and she called him Shemuel. Shemuel comes from the word asked from God. God heard my prayer. Actually, today in Israel, there is a town named Elkanah. Settlement called Elkanah. Apparently, the, he lived in that region or that area. So they called the, the town Elkanah. <clears throat> what do we learn from this verse describing Hannah's prayer? We learn a couple of things. Here are some examples. Number 19, one must focus his heart on his prayer because it says Hannah was speaking in her heart. So it's not enough just to say the words. You have to actually, when one prays, whenever we pray three times a day, we should pray from our hearts. We should be, we should be thinking about what we're what we're saying. We should be uh, fully involved in the prayer. Another thing, one who prays must enunciate the words with his lips. We can't just say, "I'm praying from my heart." We're supposed to say the words. It can be whispering or silently, but one should say actually verbalize the words. As Hannah says, her lips were moving. One is forbidden to raise his voice in the Amida prayer. Like Hannah, Hannah was whispering, which uh, introduced a new form of prayer, which wasn't common up until then. But Hannah prayed silently. And that's why when we do the Amida, the prayer, it's done silently. A drunk person is forbidden to pray. Because Eli said, are you drunk? And what if she was drunk? She can't pray. Obviously, it is not befitting to come before God and pray when one is intoxicated. Another thing, which is not directly related to prayer, but we see from the story that one who suspects another of something that he has done, that it's not done, must appease him and bless him. If someone suspects some, somebody of something that turns out they had not done, one must appease him and bless him. Unfortunately, it happens at times that we get suspected or one gets suspected for doing something and it's not enough to say, oh, okay, so I was wrong. I suspected them, I had the full right to suspect them, and now, you know, there was no room, for the, the, it was uh, unfounded. No, if one suspected somebody else, they must go and appease that person, because by suspecting them, they insulted them. Could have caused, uh, you know, reputation, uh, ruining their reputation. They have to appease them, and they must bless them. Where do we see this from Ailey? Because Ailey suspected Khan of being drunk. And coming to the temple in an unbefitting manner. And when she responded that, no, I am not drunk. I'm just praying to God from the depths of my soul. Ailey, not just appeased her, but he blessed her. And he said, may your blessing, may your request be fulfilled. And God has granted you your blessing. So we learn from the story. But what we do see is that if this is, there are some other laws as well. But we see that this is a, uh, the model of prayer. Hannah's prayer is not just an isolated story. This is what we should model in our prayers. And to conclude with a lesson, the Chana, source 20, after Shemuel was born, which also known as Samuel, 
uh, source 20, Elkanah and his entire household went up, Bahana did not go up. Elkanah had this custom of going up to the tabernacle every holiday or more often, and actually <coughs> he would, the Midrash tells us that he would uh, do this with great, um, great uh, commotion and great, uh, I guess, fanfare. He would go to, uh, to towns along the way while he was traveling from his hometown to Shiloh where the tabernacle was, and he would get other towns to join along and they would all travel together to the house of God, bring up sacrifices and offerings and celebrate there. And Hannah had this custom of going as well every holiday, as was when she went to pray. She, that's what she was doing there. But as soon as Shemuel was born, the next holiday rolled around, Hannah said, I'm not going. You can go. Source 20, continuing here. Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, until this child is weaned, then I shall bring him. I'm staying home for two years. I'm taking care of this child. I'm dedicating myself fully to this child. I don't want him to, he's too young to travel and uh, it, might, it might affect him. I'm going to stay here, do what I need to, take care. I'm not hiring a nurse. I'm not hiring a babysitter. I'm going to be his full-time caretaker, going to raise him until he is two years old, until he is weaned, and then I will fulfill my vow to God that I will dedicate him to the Lord. I will bring him to the temple where he will study under the influence of Eli, the high priest, and just be involved in spiritual pursuits for the rest of his life. And indeed, Hannah stayed and nursed her son. She didn't hire a wet nurse. She did everything herself personally. Source 21, finally, after two years, she brought the child to Ailey and said, I am the woman who is standing here with you. Remember two plus years ago to pray to the Lord for this child did I pray. She brought along her son Shemuel, the young boy, and she tells Ailey, I was here to pray. And here it is, this child, I pray for this child that I pray. And the Lord granted me my request, which I asked of him. And Hannah sang a beautiful song, which is the second part of the Haftarah, praising God, blessing God for the miraculous gift, the birth of her son Shemuel. And here she has an opportunity to fulfill her vow of bringing him up to the temple and dedicating his life to God. There's beautiful songs to these words. For this child did I pray. Okay. Final source. <clears throat> source 22. Here we have the Rebbe's unique take on everything. And the Rebbe jumps in here onto this detail. Why did the Torah have to tell us this detail? The Hannah did not go up for the first two years. She told her husband, Elkanah, I'm going to stay right here. Now the Rebbe was a big fan of Jewish women having large families and having children and the, the holy mission of bringing children into this world and educating them to be good human beings and good Jews. And the mother is cut out more for this. Of course, it's a joint effort, husband and wife, and bubbies and zadies, the grandparents, but this is something that with the motherly love, the mother can excel in. And the Rebbe says right here, look at Hannah, look at this woman, look how much, let's, let's read it inside, Source 22, this is a talk from 1983, the prophetess Hannah wished for a child, 
and sacrificed all to achieve her aim. Look what she did. She brought in her Penina. She brought in another woman into her life, into her intimate relationship with her husband. She, she brought in Penina, and it wasn't easy. It was difficult. First of all, she didn't get remembered right away. She didn't have a child right away. Penina had child after child, and Penina would taunt her and torment her. But she brought her in in the hopes that in reward for this good deed, she would be remembered. And she vowed to God that this child won't be always at her side. She would dedicate him to the, to, to the Lord. She, he was spending time from a young boy in the temple. Yes, she would come to visit, but from already a young boy, Shemuel was dedicated to the Lord. She sacrificed so much to bring a child. And for those two years, continuing after he was born, she reared him with self-sacrifice and of her own accord did not go to the tabernacle at Shiloh as was her custom. Hannah was a prophetess. She was a highly spiritual woman. And she would have enjoyed the, the, the high experience of being at the tabernacle at Shiloh. And it was her custom every holiday. And yet she said, my child comes first. I'm not taking him to the bumpy roads, to the traveling. I'm staying home with him. I'm giving up on the spiritual benefits and the enjoyment and the social and showing off my child. Who knows? All, all the details. She's staying home with this child. She's going to single-handedly, personally, going to tend to this child. This is my duty. This is my mission. This is my gift of God. I'm going to give it my all. And she gave up going to the temple. She says, uh, kind of tries to say, come along with us. She said, no, I'm staying here. I'm taking care of my child. This is my temple right here. This is my child. This is my ark. This is my, this is my duty right now to give my heart and soul to raising this child, to take care of his material needs, to take care of his spiritual needs. I am here with this child. Rather, she remained home to rear and educate the child properly, having the child's own mother there, not hiring other help. This is the best way to educate this child. That doesn't, of course, rule out. Uh, you don't have to go to an extreme. But the idea here is that the mother sees her role in educating children, in bringing children into the world. And Hannah had to really sacrifice for this. Most of us don't have to do that to such an extreme. But we can pray. We can beseech God <clears throat> to give us a gift Although we may not be worthy, we may think, who am I? We learn from Chana the power of prayer. And when God does give us the gift, we should put ourselves and recognize the duty and the holy mission that was entrusted to us. That wraps up our Lunch and Learn for today. We explored a little bit about the holiday of Rosh Hashanah, the theme of the day is very much connected to children as we see in the Torah reading, the birth of Isaac, which was also miraculous, the Haftorah, the birth of Samuel, the prayer of Hannah. That's the Hebrew. For this child did I pray, and the Lord granted me my request. 
which I asked of him. Okay, any questions or comments are welcome at this time. Next Tuesday, we will be in the synagogue celebrating Rosh Hashanah. We will not have lunch and learn. <clears throat> Tuesday and Wednesday is Rosh Hashanah. Uh, Tuesday, we'll have the shofar blowing in the synagogue at about 11 o'clock in the late afternoon at 6.30 p.m. on the beach with the Tashlich ceremony here in Seagates. We hope to see all of you there. It's outdoors. We'll have the shofar blowing there as well, which is the most important mitzvah on the day of Rosh Hashanah. Please take a moment to share this post so others can benefit as well. Have a wonderful rest of your day. And God willing, we'll see you Thursday. For our, we'll be back for our weekly episode, episode 49. Again, on the theme of Rosh Hashanah, Thursday at 7.30 p.m. Okay, Zay Gesund, be well. And for all the lunch and learners, thank you, Mark. You're welcome. For all the lunch and learners, concluded another year of studying Torah. This is a full year of studying Torah together on Facebook. We wish you all a kasiva v'achasima tova, a good and happy, sweet new year. It should be written and sealed for a successful year, a happy year, a healthy year, a worry-free year. We should only have good and happy occasions, good news and happy occasions to share with one another. If you like this lesson, you can let us know in the comments. Oh, hi Gary, thank you. It's always nice to hear feedback. Take care.